Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello and welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. Excited to have you here. This is Dr. Habib uh, along with JP Erico. How are you, JP? Doing well. Wonderful. Really excited about a new topic today that will kind of lead into that development piece, but understanding how development can even occur in the first place, we have to look at reproduction and how our macrophages are responsible for many of the important tasks of creating reproductive cells and ensuring that reproduction can occur in a human population. So today's topic is macrophages, the ANS, the autonomic nervous system, and reproduction overall. We're going to jump in there to talk about how macrophages play an important role in the production of our hormone-producing reproductive organs, both male and female. Why don't we jump in at the point of when these macrophages actually begin to play an important role here and how they kind of, I think a good word here is how they chaperone the production of reproductive organs and reproductive cells. I like that term chaperone because that's actually what macrophages really are. There are chaperones through development, through life in general. I mean, they are present in all tissues. We have two different versions of macrophages. We've got the tissue resident macrophages. Those are the ones that arrive in the tissues usually during development or even before the development of that specific organ or tissue and direct the development of it and then maintain that tissue through adulthood through the process of homeostasis. And in some cases, you have to actually step in and act like that tissue when it's overwhelmed. And they do call in the recruited macrophages, which are short-lived, tend to be pro-inflammatory cells that also are called macrophages, but they really are slightly different. They, they're temporary. They don't uh, stick around in the tissue very long. They'll stay and battle, and then they'll leave. I think you've used the analogy of firefighting crew coming in to handle a, an emergent problem, but the security guards that stay around and, and manage the building, they're there for the duration. Yes, uh, in the case of our reproductive organs, the macrophages that are involved in the development of them and the maintenance of them and in their function arrive very early on in gestation. I think uh, within the first couple of weeks of development, you see macrophages, the first immune cells, migrating out of the yolk sac into the brain and the liver and then into other areas. For example, the urogenital ridge is a structure that exists that is ultimately going to be part of your body and your bladder and your kidneys and your sexual organs. And those macrophages migrate in within the first couple of weeks and begin the process of developing you into the specific sex that you are going to be. Um, so there are uh, hormonal differences that drive which direction the, the structure should be built. And that begins really within the first couple of weeks of after conception. Yeah. And we know that those genetic differences are, are there right from the point of conception. Obviously, females have two X chromosomes. Males have an X and a Y chromosome. 
And those create variations in phenotypic and hormonal changes that will occur as development begins and as development continues into childhood and then essentially into puberty as well, where the majority of those hormonal changes start to take place and the variations create the two genders that we have here. Absolutely. There's probably no tissue in the body that has a higher preponderance of M2-like, which are the anti-inflammatory or non-inflammatory homeostatic cells rather than pro-inflammatory cells than a healthy reproductive system. The healthy reproductive system really relies very heavily on those macrophages to produce, whether it's the sperm or egg that's being produced, the macrophages play such a critical role. And I think this topic is important now because we're becoming much more aware of the importance and the prevalence of fertility challenges that are kind of plaguing our society, especially in North America. Fertility challenges are much more prevalent than anybody realizes. And there may be an immune perspective or an immune reaction that's creating this inflammatory reaction that is leading to a lot of these fertility challenges. If there is an inappropriate reaction occurring, or if there's some reason for the inflammatory reaction to be present, then it can affect the fertility and the development of a fetus. And so this is why fertility challenges tend to occur. And so we can dig into that a little bit as we go through this. We know that macrophages play a role both on the male and the female side, and understanding that ensuring that we can create a human life is dependent on the fact that we have the environment and the capability to handle it when the inflammation levels are relatively low. So we have to be in a right state of biochemistry and physiology in order to allow for the growth of a fetus into a human baby. It actually even happens earlier in the process, even the production of sperm and the production of a healthy egg and the movement of that egg through the fallopian tubes into a place where it can gestate properly in the uterus is all a function of a balance between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. We've talked a lot about the autonomic nervous system being a comprised of two components. There's the parasympathetic, which is your rest, digest, and restore mode, and the sympathetic, which is your fight or flight mode. Those are critically involved in the process of fertility and ultimately in pregnancy. And if that balance is significantly out of ideal position, then you will find that fertility is very difficult and actually conceiving and bearing a child is difficult successfully. So a lot of the fertility problems that you referenced are actually occurring in modern society because we have a high level of stress, a high level of inflammation, and a high level of obesity. Obesity turns out to be a critical inhibitor of sexual and fertility function in people of really both sexes. Yeah, I'll add to that just really briefly on the obesity side that blood sugar management and hormonal balance that comes from being able to manage and balance those the blood sugar level within the body. It's so, so important. And that is the precursor often to those obesity type issues. So you may not have a physical obesity presence, but even the predisposition or pre-diabetes kind of borderline metabolic dysfunction being a precursor to the obesity is in fact a trigger for a lot of those challenges as well. 
Yeah, and when we get to talking about the ovaries and the production of the egg, there's a big role that inflammation has on the development of the egg and then the release of it, and then functions that remain going on in the ovary during the following two weeks while we're looking to see whether that egg is going to be fertilized. In fact, the function of the ovaries, I know we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but the function of the ovaries and the hormones that are associated with the female cycle really alter the inflammatory profile of the body quite substantially between the first two weeks and the second two weeks of the cycle. Ovulation is really an inflection point where the level of inflammatory cytokines in circulation change dramatically. And that you see also quite a dramatic shift in autonomic state. We've talked about parasympathetic drive versus sympathetic drive being dominant in people and what the consequences are. And what you see is that during the second two weeks, which is referred to as the luteal phase of the cycle, you see a higher level of inflammatory cytokines present in part because they're necessary for the implantation process to occur successfully. When there is not a fertilization event, then that sort of subsides. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. I think it's probably wise for us just because the male component of reproduction is, from a genetic standpoint, very important. It's nearly a half of the genetic material uh, that contributed to the baby comes from the male. But in terms of the gestation of the child, men have almost a negligible role, if any. I said almost, and I, this is a bit of an aside, it's almost equal. Um, certainly the male contribution, sperm have the deciding factor as to whether or not the child is going to be male or female, because it's either whether the male is contributing a Y chromosome or an X chromosome that makes that difference. But the male contribution is only nuclear DNA. And that's obviously the majority of the DNA that's present in the cell. But there is DNA associated with the mitochondria, which are the energy sources inside the cell. And mitochondrial DNA is only contributed by the female because the sperm don't bring along with them mitochondria that are going to participate in the fertilization event. They only bring the DNA, whereas the female contribution, the egg, has both nuclear DNA as well as the mitochondria because they're the resident cell that's going to continue to function. So you get your mitochondria 100% from your mother. Yes, 100%. And that's an important distinction. So maternal DNA is generational and follows your maternal pathway as well. So that's something to be aware of. Maternal DNA, maternal mitochondria are passed down where nuclear genetics are passed from 50% from each parent. Important to make that distinction. I'm glad you kind of pointed that we have, as males, just under 50% of the contribution of genetic material. Yes, we do get to pick the sex of our child, or although it's not a conscious choice, it's just it's luck of the draw. But um, we use that mitochondrial DNA connection to actually be able to evolutionarily track back to, it looks as if there actually was, in some sense, an Eve, a single woman from whom all humanity arose. It was probably through a choke point at some point in the population size of humans on earth, but there was, appears to be one woman whose mitochondrial DNA is now in all of us. Which is really cool to think about and to kind of ponder on, I think is the best way to put that. 
Exactly. I always found that very interesting. But getting back to the reproductive system and the role of macrophages and the autonomic nervous system, we said we're going to start with males. And there are uh, testicular macrophages. There are actually two different classes of them. They're the interstitial and the peritubular, although there's not that much that distinguish them. They're almost identical to one another and they do very similar tasks. They are the resident macrophages. And as a result, as we said before, they reside in the tissue for a very long time, usually for your entire life from development. We said three weeks after conception, all the way through to the end of your life. And they reproduce when necessary without the need for any contact with blood monocytes or other circulating factors. In fact, there is a level to which that is what's referred to as privileged tissue. And just to explain to everybody what it means when you say privileged tissue, there are certain areas of your body, for example, in your eyes, and in this case, in your testicles, that there's no blood access. And as a result, the immune system never sees it. And as a result, does not have to have tolerance to it. And what I mean by that is that in order for your body not to, or your immune system, not to attack your cells, you need to have a tolerance to it. The, all the, the antibodies and T cells and other cells of your adaptive immune system need to, that would otherwise have attacked you, need to be eliminated. And so there's a process by which those T cells and B cells that create antibodies, if they are creating something that would attack you or, or stick to something that's you, they're eliminated. But privileged tissue is not included in that process because it's never going to see blood under normal circumstances. So areas of your eyes and areas in other portions of your body are privileged tissue. It's inside your joints, there's privileged tissue as well. And the point of this is that because there is this separation, if you will, of privileged tissue from the rest of your immune system, any dysfunction that could bring blood into contact with that tissue has the risk of creating an autoimmune response. And actually, one of the, one of the primary reasons for male infertility is actually this loss of separation between the blood supply and that tissue. And unfortunately, we talked about the fact that inflammation causes a recruitment of cells out of the bloodstream into that tissue, even if it's privileged. And as a result, you can disrupt fertility quite dramatically if the spermatocytes and the cells that produce sperm, if they are suddenly the target of an autoimmune response. And again, that's something that is all a function of how macrophages are maintaining that homeostatic environment, maintaining the anti or non-inflammatory environment in that tissue. It's really interesting to hear, and I want to kind of cover that a little bit. So these particular tissue, essentially, they have blood supply to them, but they're never truly under regular or normal circumstances going to experience interaction with other white blood cells, essentially, is what we're hearing. And so we're getting our oxygen in via the blood flow, the capillaries that are present, but we're not getting the white blood cells coming in. The, the immune cells are not being recruited to that tissue under normal circumstances. 
but under inflammatory circumstances, then white blood cells may be recruited or, or are capable of then reaching those tissues, which have the greater propensity or the greater risk of creating fertility challenges because the interaction can occur and an autoimmune type of process can be triggered in that event. Is that particularly due to the vascular barrier being stronger in those particular privileged tissues? Do we essentially have uh, thicker or more, what's the best word for this? Well, there's an equivalent of the blood-brain barrier. I think most people are familiar with the blood-brain barrier, barrier that exists between the blood and the brain tissue preventing immune responses from migrating from the blood into the brain. I mean, obviously the purpose behind that is is also to prevent pathogens that might have invaded the bloodstream getting into the brain. There's a similar blood testicle barrier that prevents monocytes and pathogens and other immune tissue from, or immune cells from getting into that tissue. And unfortunately, Chronic inflammatory conditions, including obesity and chronic stress and other things, can disrupt that barrier and allow those monocytes to go in and create an inflammatory environment inside there over a long period of time. And and there are certain feed-forward loops, if you will, sort of compounding the problem situations that lead to the death of a number of really critical cells. There are lytic cells that are integral with the production of sperm. And so you end up seeing not only um, sperm production go down, but the quality of the, of the cells that are present because the sperm, once they're produced, they need to mature and they need to have access to nutrients, et cetera. And all of that is provided in that privileged tissue. And if it's disrupted, it's not functioning properly. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. So just from like an analogy perspective, there's certain neighborhoods in a community that have bigger gates, bigger barriers, more security to ensure that nobody gets in. Things like gated communities, for example, have more barrier, more security to ensure that they are more secure from external threats versus other, an apartment building versus mansions and similar neighborhoods. Different level of security different functions, but that's kind of that's the privileged quote-unquote tissue that allows for certain important circumstances or certain important functions to occur. And I would state that reproduction is probably one of the most important because it's growth and the continuance of our genetic material passed down generationally uh, requires reproduction to be functioning. And so when that barrier breaks down and we have these inflammatory reactions and the recruitment of white blood cells that normally would not enter, we can have a breakdown of the hormonal and the spermatogenic functions in the testicular tissue. Absolutely. You bring up a good point that two of the most important drivers of all behavior for humans is survival and reproduction. Survival does tend, especially outside of pregnancy, tend to be the stronger of the two. And what we see in the development of of sperm is that you have this inflammatory trigger that may be chronic in the case of overnutrition, obesity, as well as other conditions that lead to a distortion of the hormone expression that's coming out of that tissue. In the case of your testicles, you, you are producing testosterone. 
And if that testosterone production is deficient or is disrupted, in this case, Leydig cells are, are not producing testosterone properly, you get a shift in the balance between estrogen and testosterone. And it turns out that this inflammatory state actually causes these Leydig cells that are so critical to uh, express a protein signature on their surface that is referred to euphemistically as eat me signals, which actually trigger the macrophages to devour them. Even the resident macrophages can be distorted into doing that, although that's less likely than having the recruited monocytes or recruited macrophages doing that. But in any event, it's not just inflammatory, you know, traditional inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis or you know, or Lyme disease or things like that, that can lead to this reduction in sperm production. It can be obesity that we've talked about, but it can also be high levels of stress. Mm -hmm. uh, we've talked in the past about the fact that stress leads to higher levels of inflammatory markers because stress triggers this sympathetic activation and your autonomic nervous system, sympathetic arm of it being activated can lead to a higher level of monocytes in the bloodstream. And the more monocytes there are, the more they're looking for a place to go. This is one of those places where their arrival can be quite damaging. I think an easy way to understand this is that on that hierarchy of importance, survival comes first. And survival is the top of the list, especially for males. We're not the ones that males don't carry baby. We don't carry the next generation within us and grow them. But what we do is we provide that genetic material, but that comes secondary to our survival first. And so in order for our bodies to ensure that we survive, we need to minimize inflammation. Inflammation is a threat to our survival or the response to the threat to our survival. And so we need to manage that inflammation first before we worry about reproduction. Reproduction is a secondary piece or just below on the hierarchy to survival. And so we ensure that, okay, if there is inflammation, the energy and the support and the, the function needs to go towards that first. And once that is handled, then we can put the attention and put the energy back towards the actual reproduction, the production of sperm so that the next generation can be formed. That hierarchy plays a really important role here. Yeah. And we've been spending most of the time talking about male performance in the sense of performing the function of producing sperm cells. But the function of males physically is also impaired by stress. Yes. I think most men out there would say it's not the ideal environment to try to reproduce when you're being attacked by a lion or when you have you're fighting for your life with a viral infection, not the ideal time to try to reproduce because your body is in a highly sympathetically activated mode. So sympathetic activation not only disrupts the physical performance, but we're now discovering it, it actually alters your ability to be fertile. Yeah. And so we know now both on the physical side on diagnoses of things like erectile dysfunction or the physical performance of copulation versus the actual production of spermatogenesis, the production of sperm, both are going to be negatively linked to testosterone and hormonal dysfunction because of some sort of inflammation, whether it's 
physical inflammation, biochemical inflammation, emotional or psychological, all will play an important role in creating that challenge to reproduce. And it's not only men who experience that as well. So as we now shift gears to talk about the much larger role, much more important, although can't happen without male participation, it is certainly a bigger role that females have in reproduction. So maybe it's time to, to shift gears and talk about all of the different ways in which the female reproductive system from ovaries to fallopian tube to the uterus to ultimately breast tissue for, for providing nourishment, all of that is integrally infused with macrophages of different types, but all of them are tissue macrophages in homeostasis and they are literally building us for building, in this case, females from conception to old age. Yeah. So why don't we start with something that you alluded to earlier, which is the two phases of the female reproductive cycle and yeah, the the into the actual uh, implantation and stuff after. Yeah, sure. I've had an opportunity to speak with many physicians and healthcare providers along the way who are female. And when we get to this discussion, there's always this aha moment that they experience where they say, wow, that explains a lot of what's going on with me. So it is a very personal experience, one which I don't have. I'm married. I have children. I have sisters. I had a mother. I have female children. I certainly understand from afar what they're experiencing. But the male immune system and the female immune system are very different because the primary function or one of the primary functions of the immune system is to protect ourselves from non-self getting inside us, the pathogens that could get through an open wound or otherwise, or get through our digestive system wall. All of that is non-self and the immune system is designed to defend us against that. However, the process of carrying a child is sort of the quintessential non-self inside the woman. So there has to be a much more complicated, much more dynamic immune system response to that so that reproduction can occur. And so what we see is that the female menstrual cycle, beginning you know, with puberty and going all the way through menopause, is a dynamic month-long dance, if you will, between both sympathetic and parasympathetic activation and anti-inflammatory or non-inflammatory states versus inflammatory states. And so the first half of the menstrual cycle is called the follicular phase. And that's the phase where the egg is being produced in the ovary. And we'll get into the details of how macrophages play a role in that. But what we see is during that phase, there's very low levels of inflammation, very low levels of sympathetic activation. There's a very high level of sort of vagal tone, which is the parasympathetic tone. And so during that phase, typically you see a lower level of inflammatory symptoms, symptoms like pain, emotional symptoms, depression, generally good mood, good elevation of mood, et cetera. That then changes, as I said, there's an inflection point at ovulation where there needs to be a level of higher inflammation that is present in the body because at that point, there's the risk of non-self and there's the desire to, on the part of the, uh, of the system, there's a desire for 
a fertilization event to take place and an implantation to take place. And so that leads to a higher level of inflammation that then ends with, in the case of an unsuccessful pregnancy event or you know, no pregnancy, no fertilization occurs, then you have menstruation, which then recycles the process. There's lots that's going on inside the ovaries during that point. There's lots that's going on in the fallopian tubes with respect to moving an egg down towards the uterus and in the uterus, the preparation for the possibility of an implantation event. All of that cycling, all of the changes in the tissue that are taking place are in very large extent orchestrated and controlled by the tissue resident macrophages through their release of various different factors. So as we talk about the, the ovaries and the fallopian tubes and the uterus, you're going to see this sort of delicate dance of macrophages in higher populations, lower populations, and the various different factors that they're releasing. But the practical upshot for uh, this cycling is that during menstruation or right during the period right before it, there's such a high level of inflammation that symptoms like PMS or dysmenorrhea or other things that women experience during that time are strong, unfortunately negative, uncomfortable symptoms that once they get through menstruation and they're back into the follicular phase where there's a very low level of inflammation and high level of vagal tone versus sympathetic tone, those symptoms go away. Interestingly, during pregnancy, that shifts because now there doesn't need to be that cycling that takes place. It can be a very low level of inflammation throughout pregnancy. And then at the end of pregnancy, you see after the baby has come to term and, and has been delivered, you see a shift back into that higher level of inflammation that exists. And so you see some of the postnatal or the symptoms associated with um, having given birth, that postpartum depression and other symptoms that occur largely we believe because there's a change in the inflammation state. And that really doesn't get back to equilibrium until the woman starts her cycle again. Yeah. And that takes obviously time. And it's important to understand that you mentioned the vagal tone and the sympathovagal balance, the balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. And that balance initially, when we're on that cyclic pattern pre-pregnancy, that vagal tone, and, and I believe there's some really good studies here that talk about vagal tone, when vagal tone is high, that the chances of pregnancy or, or PMS type symptoms is altered. Is there anything that you can talk to on that? Yeah, they've actually done a, a pretty fascinating study by Matsumoto in which they looked at the, the autonomic nervous system balance, as you were saying, among women who do not experience PMS or other symptoms versus a group that did experience PMS, and then another group that actually had even more severe with PMDD. And what they found was there was this really strong correlation to that sympathetic activation, that higher level of sympathetic drive that occurs in the luteal phase being modest to reasonable in patients who or subjects who did not have PMS symptoms it was higher in women who did have PMS symptoms, and it was highest among the group that had PMDD. So it appears to be this rise in sympathetic activation actually leads to the symptoms of PMS. 
And so I think that's an important point because we can also talk to the, the factor of therapeutically, if we're able to increase vagal tone, if we're able to increase that HRV marker that shows this, that we can shift in that parasympathetic zone more readily. And that should theoretically be correlated with improvements in PMS symptoms and not experiencing them as severely. Yes, absolutely. That's the theory. It's yet to be shown in a clinical study, in a clinical setting, but there's plenty of anecdotal reports to suggest that, that what you're suggesting is true, that exercise, modest exercise or other techniques or technologies that can activate parasympathetic tone can reduce the symptoms of PMS or PMDD. The question is, is there a need from a fertility standpoint to have that higher level of sympathetic activation? Is it a requirement? And if you were to blunt that, would you inhibit the fertility? And the answer appears to be no. In fact, it appears to be the opposite, that if that sympathetic activation is too high to the point of being symptomatic, that it's not that you're infertile, that's not the case, but that it may be, might take you a little longer to get pregnant. It might have some impact, modest impact. But again, if it's not necessary for fertility reasons, why experience it if you can avoid it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it goes to the point of, is there some sort of inflammatory trigger that's pushing that baseline response more sympathetic versus parasympathetic? Is there something that's pushing or some potential trigger or inflammatory root cause like a bacterial pathogen or gut dysbiosis or heavy metals or mold or something that emotional or psychological stress that are triggering an inflammatory reaction, pushing towards a sympathetic activated state as the baseline. And that's where sometimes that fertility challenge can really be um, experienced. Yeah, there's no question that stress and inflammation do reduce the fertility capability of women or capability to become pregnant or pregnancy complications. We're all aware of some of the pregnancy complications, and we'll talk about some of them as we get to a discussion of the placental macrophages, et cetera. But just getting back to ovulation itself and, and the structure of the ovary and, and how macrophages play a role, I think it's just a little bit of anatomy is worth uh, talking about here. So when the ovaries are first formed, even in utero, those ovaries have within them literally hundreds of thousands of potential eggs. Now, the average woman will only produce one egg per ovulation cycle. It's not always one, sometimes it's more, but especially if, if there's fertility drugs that have been used that can trigger more than one egg to be produced. But in general, the average I think is somewhere around 480 monthly cycles that a woman will go through. So somewhere around 500 eggs are produced. You know, maybe it's more, maybe it's less, depending on the woman and how long she's fertile. But that 480 number is the average. That's a lot smaller number mm -hmm. than the hundreds of thousands of potential eggs that could be produced. Now, the eggs are organized in structures that are what are called follicles. And these follicles have to go on a monthly basis once you get into the fertility zone of after puberty, you have follicles that go through a, about a two-week-long process of maturing. And as they mature in that what's called the follicular stage, because the follicles are maturing, 
they will then, that ends with the release of the egg. Now, macrophages play a critical role in promoting that follicular process. And in fact, what they've seen is that if you actually remove the macrophages from that tissue, that you have a disruption in that follicles formation. Now, there are a lot more follicles and a lot more potential eggs than there are actual ovulation events. And so what actually the other role that macrophages play, it's actually a dominant role, is in removing the follicles that don't produce a successful egg. And so part of the process that's going on in the ovary is not only the production of that one egg, or in some cases, a few, that make it into the process of, of bursting out of the follicle and then being potentially have the opportunity to be fertilized. But you have literally 99% of those follicles and those eggs never make it because they're actually removed by macrophages. So the process is, yes, one or two are going to make it, but a hundred aren't. And the macrophages are picking and choosing which ones get to be produced and which ones don't. And there's a delicate balance between the, the level of inflammation and inflammatory cytokines that are being produced because inflammatory cytokines are part of that removal process. So that's all going on during that follicular phase and in the early stages of the luteal phase. The other thing that's happening in the luteal phase, and we've talked about this a little bit earlier, is you have the release of the egg into the tissue and the hope is that it's going to get fertilized as it moves down into ultimately the uterus. And the follicle that released that egg remains active. It actually is producing a very strong hormonal signal that is, and it's waiting to hear back. It's a two-way street. It's producing a, a strong hormonal signal and it's waiting for that implantation event to take place. And then when it hears that, then it changes what it's doing versus when it doesn't hear that event. And part of what it's doing when it hears that there's an implantation event that's taking place where now you have a fertilized egg that's implanted into the uterus, what happens is that signal, the, the follicle that's released that egg originally gets, it shuts down the ongoing ovulation process. So it changes the hormones that are coming out of the female reproductive system as a result of that implantation event. It's a it's really a, a rather elegant orchestration of different organs functioning. All of those organs are really changing their activity base really over the month quite dramatically. Yeah, that's absolutely it's best way to put it is a delicate balance and a very orchestrated, very beautiful kind of harmony between all of these different hormones and different organs creating this cascade of events basically and dependent on which follicle is released and dependent on which hormone levels are high and dependent on the implantation event being able to shift that hormonal balance and actually follow the pattern accordingly so so important there and let's talk about some of those tissue resident ovarian macrophages that are involved in the polarization and the biochemical environment in the ovary to begin with. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, tissue. And, and the macrophages that are there are 
are a little different the way we've sort of evolved our thinking about macrophages over the past several discussions that we've had about them. Typically, what we see is that tissue resident macrophages spend almost all of their time, if not all of their time, in that it's called the M2 state. I realize it's a, a very vague term, but it basically means an anti or non-inflammatory state. But it appears in ovaries that the M1 state, that inflammatory state, is critical for the proper growth and function and ultimately production of healthy, viable eggs in that if you deplete M1 macrophages, if you chemically either ablate them away or you uh, chemically prevent them from going into that M1 state, you have uh, an impairment of the ability of that follicle to grow properly. Actually, even the tissue that houses it, you get microhemorrhaging and it's believed that that's a function of the need for a growth and a receding of blood vessels mm. during that process. So that follicle that's growing is there's a lot of changes that are taking place. There's a lot of dynamic activity that's going on in that tissue and it needs blood supply. And that blood supply has to be built and then recede away, especially in the follicles that are removed. There is this ongoing back and forth of growth and receding uh, the blood vessels that requires an M1 state of a macrophage. And so if that's not present, you end up with uh, hemorrhage and other dysfunction or dysfunctional tissue. And that, of course, can block folliculogenesis and the release of the egg. Would you state then that the baseline inflammatory kind of function that occurs, it needs to be, obviously, there's a delicate balance between kind of a pure M2 position and a pure M1 position. And there's almost like a balance in there where you have to go just slightly over the line to from that towards that pro-inflammatory macrophage that ensures that the blood flow and the follicle and all of those, the balance is, is followed. But if we're too far into that inflammatory state from a baseline to begin with, it could lead to dysfunction to begin with as well. And then if we're not able to shift from that M2 anti-inflammatory state into that kind of balanced M1 area, then we would also have dysfunction. Dysfunction of macrophages not being able to maintain that balance between the M1 state, which is required for removing tissue that's never going to actually ultimately produce an egg, or the angiogenesis, that ebb and flow of blood vessel activity and growth. If that's not functioning properly, you can end up with conditions like PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, and other even more challenging issues beyond even infertility, but cancer. I mean, that tissue, any tissue that has that level of growth and change can be a site of metastatic disease development. It's those fast changing, fast moving tissues that are most susceptible in many cases, especially if there's inflammatory signaling that's going on. So yeah, dysfunction of the ovarian resident tissue macrophages can lead to conditions that range from infertility to painful conditions, endometrial. You know, endometrial, it's slightly separate, but you get ovarian cysts, you can get cancer, and ultimately you're going to see other dysfunctional macrophages, tissue macrophages leading to other problems that can be quite severe. 
Can we briefly touch on, we mentioned how emotional and psychological stress affect the male spermatogenesis function. Let's talk just really briefly about the female response to emotional and psychological stress as well. Yeah, it's actually a little bit longer lasting than it is in men. Stress, even chronic stress, when it ultimately is relieved, provided there hasn't been lasting removal of sperm cells that or sperm generating cells that can't be replaced. And generally, there can be a replacement of it. In the case of, of the female and the production of eggs, what you see is that during period of stress, there is normal function or reasonably normal function during that month. But actually in the subsequent month or months following, there is a disruption that lingers even after that stress has subsided. So they've done animal studies looking at this and and they show that if an animal is put under significant stress for an extended period of time, a week, two weeks, et cetera, during that month, the egg development process functions normally or reasonably normally, but in, in subsequent months, it's disrupted. That's very interesting to hear. And maybe in a future episode, we can get dig deeper into that a little bit as well. So once that the ovary releases the follicle and, and that follicle starts to pass down through the fallopian tube, there are particular macrophages that play an important role within that fallopian tube. Let's talk a little bit about that, the function with regards to tubal motility. Sure. There actually, there are, again, fallopian macrophages, and the fallopian macrophages interact with a number of different hormones. But one of the most important signaling proteins for macrophages is CSF1. CSF1 is a colony stimulating factor that is, without it, macrophages die off. So if you block it, you can ablate macrophages. In fact, that's the preferred way of, of ablating tissue resident macrophages is by blocking CSF1. But there's also LIF, which is a signaling protein necessary for proper function. And what you alluded to before is correct, that in the event of of disruption of those macrophages, either by blocking CSF1 or if there's uh, other signaling errors that are taking place, you can get a dysfunction in the motility of the tissue of the fallopian tube. So the fallopian tube is trying to push that egg from the ovaries down into the uterus. And what can happen is that the egg is actually already fertilized at that point, and it's moving through that fallopian tube. There's the possibility of what's referred to as an ectopic pregnancy. That's where the egg implants into the, into the tissue of the fallopian tube, doesn't make it all the way down to the uterus. And that's not only non-viable, that not only means that that fertilized egg is not going to ultimately produce a human being, but it can be actually quite dangerous for the woman because depending on how long that pregnancy continues, that ectopic pregnancy continues, it can destroy the tissue of the fallopian tube. It can burst and actually cause a septic event and actually kill the mother. So one of the things that OBGYNs do is make certain that that implantation is taking place. And disruption of those macrophages, disruption of that process of maintaining motility through that tissue actually can prevent the egg from making it. Now, there are some, it's a redundant system. So there are little hair-like 
cilia that are undulating and they move sort of independent of the macrophage. Yeah. Um, but the actual physical movement or pulsing of that tube to sort of push much the same way in the uh, gastrointestinal system, yeah. you've got that peristaltic motion. You've got a similar motion that's working in the fallopian tube and that gets disrupted. And again, the disruption of those signaling proteins can lead to an ectopic pregnancy. Sounds very much like the interaction between where there is motile tissue and the smooth muscle cells and those macrophages play an important role in ensuring that movement does occur effectively and in a way that doesn't create stagnation, right? We want to ensure that that immune balance is present to ensure that implantation does occur in the right place, that food moves along the tube in the correct manner and the correct rate uh, or speed. And so that interaction between the immune tissue resident macrophages and those smooth muscle tissues are very, very important. Absolutely. And we want that blastocyst, that post-conception group of cells to make it down into the uterus and implant in the uterus, where, not surprisingly, <laughs> there are uterine macrophages that are playing a critical role in ensuring that the uterus is functioning properly. And interestingly, like the ovary, there is a, a change in the number of macrophages that exist in that tissue, depending on where it is in the menstrual cycle. That number of macrophages can oscillate by 50, even as much as 50%. Um, so for every three macrophages that are present at one time, you, you only have two later. That appears to all be a function of the macrophages that are tissue resident reproducing versus monocytes moving into that tissue to become tissue resident macrophages. That's really interesting. And certainly like the uterine macrophages are going to be so important in that implantation process. And so obviously when the tissue is engorged and we have the opportunity or the ability for implantation to occur, those macrophages are going to play a very important role in ensuring that implantation does take place successfully when they are functioning optimally. Yes. And in fact, the same signaling proteins of CSF1 and LIF are involved in that process. Now, LIF is an interesting one because it's actually a member of the pro-inflammatory or, well, it's interleukin-6. And interleukin-6 can be both a pro-inflammatory and a pro-resolving of inflammation cytokine. So it's generally considered pro-inflammatory in, in many autoimmune diseases, but it does play a really important role as an anti-inflammatory agent. But if those signaling proteins aren't present, you can you see a lowering of the success rate of implantation of that fertilized egg. So LIF is critical for embryo implantation. And of course, these signaling proteins are associated with macrophages and macrophage activity which in the event that macrophages aren't there, that pregnancy doesn't succeed. In cases of recurrent, sadly, like abortion, things like that, has there been anything shown with regards to signaling molecules or the CSF or LIF production particularly? Well, termination of a pregnancy by Mother Nature, because the fetus is either not evolving properly or there's stress that's altering the inflammatory profile of of the macrophages that are doing the job. There's even ways in which the mother's immune system recognizes genetic errors in the fetus. If those things happen, 
that's a relatively natural process as disheartening or as emotionally troubling as that may be. It's still a natural process that is, is necessary. In the event of an abortion that, that is not natural, it's, it's imposed, it can cause damage to the tissue. And when you cause damage to any tissue in a gross manner, that can disrupt the long-term polarization of the macrophages. We've talked in the past about what happens in the central nervous system, for example. Insults in the central nervous system cause microglial cells to become activated into a pro-inflammatory state, and they stay in that pro-inflammatory orientation long past when that temporary insult is gone. The same thing is true in any tissue. In any tissue, macrophages that are damaged or forced, especially tissue resident macrophages that are forced into that pro-inflammatory posture, will have experienced a priming event. And so, yes, any intrusion into that tissue in a way that could disrupt those macrophages can be damaging. However, by the same token, there are pretty dramatic disruption of those tissues in the case of cesarean section. And yet people who had cesarean sections don't necessarily find it difficult to get pregnant again. So I don't want to overstate the case. I'm just saying that anything that disrupts macrophage homeostasis and normal function can or has the risk of creating a primed environment that is dysfunctional. I'm really interested in the interaction between the maternal macrophage cells and the Hofbauer or the fetal macrophage cells following implantation. I'd be really interested to hear about the interaction between those two types. Yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic. We've talked in the past about the fact that when conception takes place and you have a fertilized egg that's beginning to divide and it's even in the very earliest stages of development, there are cells that are going to be part of the growing child. Um, but there are also other cells that are there to do the construction work. We use the analogy of the building that's being put up, that you, the ultimate building materials do not include the scaffolding, do not include the mobile home that's on the property. It doesn't include the equipment that's used to build it. All of that stuff is taken away at the end. So what you have is, this fertilized egg that's producing all of these different cells. One class of these cells are, as you said, Hofbauer cells. These are the tissue resident, and it's a temporary tissue. So the placenta is really temporary organ. That is the organ of the child. And that is attached to the tissue of the mother. And at that interface, there's a group of cells, Hofbauer cells, that are the fetal macrophages that penetrate into that tissue. And then there's a group of basically uterine or placental macrophages that are called deciduous macrophages that are present and they're maternal. And they each play a role right next to one another in controlling how that tissue is functioning. Hofbauer cells are almost entirely non-inflammatory. Their goal is to create a low inflammatory environment so that the maternal immune system does not attack and destroy that fetus. The failure of Hofbauer cells to function properly leads to a loss of the pregnancy. 
There's no question about it. Their, their job is basically to prevent the mother's immune system from doing that. But they also play a role in partnership with those decidual macrophages that are maternal in ensuring that all of the connections that need to be made through that tissue of the uterine wall into the placenta to deliver nutrients is functioning properly. And of course, you want to, to the extent that there's ever a possibility that that could be a non-sterile environment, you want to have the ability to attack pathogens and to deal with that. And that really is entirely on the job of the decidual or maternal macrophages. The, the Hofbauer cells don't play a role in that. And so, in fact, it's not clear that they're actually even capable of taking on that pro-inflammatory stance necessary to attack a pathogen. It sounds like right from the point of implantation, the baby is telling the mother what to do, and the mother has to do everything required to ensure that baby is taken care of from the point of implantation. It's certainly the macrophages from the, uh, uh, the growing child. Those macrophages are the construction crew that's building the building, and they're also the construction crew that's building the roads that are bringing the materials in. And it's interesting because even macrophages ultimately at the end of the pregnancy, it's that interaction between the macrophages, the Hofbauer cells and other cells that are fetal cells, triggering the mother's body to enter into labor. Wow. So it's not simply the mother reaching the point of saying, okay, I got to get rid of this child. I have to enter labor. It's actually triggered by the macrophages in, in the fetal side, if you will. So literally baby is saying, I'm ready. Yeah, exactly. And says, okay, let's go. And unfortunately, when that signal gets disrupted, and we know things that can cause preterm labor include inflammatory signals and autonomic dysfunction along the lines of sympathetic overdrive. When a woman starts to enter preterm labor, what is it that they try to do? They try to block that from occurring through you know, IVs of various different chemicals that have a variety of different effects on smooth muscle and et cetera, but they put you on bed rest. And it's not simply because they're worried about gravity. They're worried about Trust. anything that overactivates the sympathetic nervous system. If you can decrease that sympathetic activation and remain in a parasympathetic state, you have a much higher probability of maintaining that child to term. So ultimately, being in good shape, being in a low inflammatory state when you get pregnant, you have a higher probability of A, being able to get pregnant, having a successful implantation, and bringing that child to term properly. Just a pitch to everybody out there. It's good to stay in a low inflammatory state, whether that be you know, watching your weight, take time to exercise, sleep right, eat right, especially if you're planning to have a child. Take the time out of your life to de-stress. And I realize nine months sounds like forever in today's world, but it's nine months that you will get back dividends that will be happy with for a lifetime. Yeah. And I think focusing on that baseline inflammation and ensuring that the stressors and the triggers are minimized during the implantation and the development period are so important in ensuring both the viability and the the full term of a pregnancy to ensure that you are, if you're lucky enough to be gifted with the chaos that runs my house now, that you get to that point. So really important to focus on that. And before we end, I just want to get to the last 
kind of part of the tissue that is required in or that macrophages play an important role in, and that is once baby is born to actually be nourished and to actually have uh, nutrients getting to them. And that is through breast tissue development and breast tissue being managed again by shockingly tissue resident macrophages. Yeah, actually, it's a pretty interesting story. And again, right from within the first few weeks of gestation, mammary gland macrophages are involved in the process of causing the buds and sprouting and branching that leads to rudimentary ducts and the duct work of ultimately what could be breast tissue. And that happens during embryogenesis. Maternal hormones are playing a role in that. And frankly, that continues throughout gestation, but then it sort of stops. And then during childhood up to puberty, there's really very little activity going on there. It's just sort of almost in hibernation. And then at puberty, you have this sort of bidirectional pathways that take place depending if you're male or female. If you're male, the tissue resident macrophages that are there will actually just take away that tissue. Mm -hmm. um, it's not triggered at that point to create, it's triggered to destroy. And so the macrophages will basically take down the scaffolding, take down the, the structure and it goes away. The opposite occurs in females. There's activation of, or the aggregation of fat into a fat pad that provides lots of energy. And the second phase of the duct work being built occurs and you have the formation of a breast at that point. Now, that breast is not yet capable of lactating. That is a third stage. And that's the third and final stage that only occurs during the final stages of pregnancy or during pregnancy and then really reaches its final stage at the completion of the pregnancy. That's the point at which macrophages have completed the build, if you will, and breast milk is available to the baby. But just like we, we said before, the placenta is a temporary organ. I mean, it has all the features of an organ, but it only lasts during the nine months of pregnancy. That third stage of building a lactating tissue inside the female breast only occurs during pregnancy and only survives so long as that milk is being excreted and used and, and you're suckling a child. Once that is complete, there's a complete dismantling of that tissue by not, I shouldn't say a complete dismantling. It's a reversion of that tissue from a lactating state to a pre-lactating state that you get after puberty. And that cycles back and forth with each pregnancy. It's a very exciting process in my mind because you have it cycling based on not a purely biological process that's sort of controlled entirely by biology. It's controlled also by your interaction with your environment. It's controlled by the child and whether the child is there and, and breastfeeding or you're pumping milk. I mean, any of those things will maintain that tissue simply by use. I guess it's a, a use it or lose it kind of thing. The interesting thing to me is how the autonomic nervous system plays a role here, because I think anybody who's had a child or has been around a mother who's providing breast milk to the baby, there is a 
very strong influence on the success of milk production and stress. Stress can be, and inflammation also, can cause that process to fail and not to function as robustly as possible. And I've seen in my own experiences with women who are utilizing techniques or technologies to enhance parasympathetic activity that their lactation is much more robust and much more, frankly, large volumes of milk are produced when the lactating mom is in that parasympathetic driven state versus a sympathetic driven state. Um, and there are conditions out there where women have a high level of sympathetic overdrive because of whatever medical those medical conditions might be, and that they may very much benefit from being what I like to coin being a parasympathetic parent. Don't just be sympathetic to your children's needs, be parasympathetic to them, and you'll find yourself being a better parent. I absolutely love that line, and I think that is the perfect place for us to uh, kind of end off on not just a sympathetic parent to the child's needs, but be parasympathetic and teach them how to manage that stress and to revert to that homeostatic, resilient pattern that parasympathetic balance allows for, which is really wonderful. I love that line. I'm going to use that in my life now. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Be a parasympathetic parent. I love it. This was a wonderful episode. I think we covered pretty much everything that we wanted to through the entire process of reproduction, the balance of how hormones play an important role in macrophages and how macrophages take on that important information and utilize it to allow for the entire production of or reproduction to occur. So this was a wonderful episode. Thank you so much for uh, listening, for uh, JP for going through that with us. And we're excited. We've got some really interesting things in store for us. We're going to talk more about angiogenesis in the future. We're going to talk more about neurodevelopment and have some wonderful guests on there. We're going to get into things like pain and we're going to get into the clinical uses of things like vagus nerve stimulation and activation of that parasympathetic nervous system with clinicians as well in future episodes. There's lots in store for you and we're really excited to bring that to you. If you really enjoyed this episode, please share with anyone who you think can utilize this information and stay tuned for the next one. Have a wonderful day. 